And the stone ape hypothesis suggests that what happened was either Homo habilis or late Australopithecus started consuming magic mushrooms, so psilocybin, that leads to this brain case explosion. I wouldn't sit here and say there's no way at some point in history, some hominin somewhere didn't try some magic mushrooms and all of a sudden it was like, click, now we have some new adaptation. So it's not impossible that that's something that, that was at play, it's just untestable. After Sahelanthropus, we have Aurorantubinensis, who also has bipedal adaptations specifically in the head of the femur. We have Ardipithecus ramidus and Ardipithecus cadaba. These guys are very interesting because just like modern humans, and unlike many other primates, they're monomorphic. So from Homo hylobrigensis, we see emerges archaic Homo sapiens and eventually anatomically modern Homo sapiens, who's living at the same time of many of these hominins. We have a lot of transitional species for human evolution. Like, I, this is why I love science so much, because science seeks to, to work in the empirical. It Once you're like, who started the Big Bang? I don't know, and I don't really care. You know, we're, we're here, right? If you really want to go with using bad language, that's a bit miraculous, isn't it? Welcome back to the Gnostic Informant, and you are about to attain true Gnosis. And today, my special guest is Gutsick Gibbon, a fast-growing channel on YouTube, and you are just amazing, and your content is just awesome. And thanks for coming on. Hey, man, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm I'm glad to uh, I'm glad to be here and talk about some of the 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 topics that we briefly discussed over email. So I'm sure we're gonna have a good time. But yeah, let's. Let's hope the growth continues. We'll see. We'll see. Oh, there's no doubt about it. That your channel is going to blow up. You're killing. I hope that. I hope you're right. I, I, you do have the. Uh, you have the gnosis, right? So it's like you got to be right. Yeah, I got the gnosis. So I'm predicting. You know what I mean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so exactly. okay, let's, let's talk about evolution. Um, and I want to start off with a funny theory that from Terence McKenna. Ah. It's called the stoned ape. He calls it the theory, but it's really just a hypothesis. Oh, yeah. It's probably has some problems. It's so someone like me. I love it. It sounds like it makes perfect sense. Like that is it. It's got to be true. But obviously, I'm not an expert. And that's why I'm having you on. So I wanted to ask you, what is the stone ape theory? And is there anything true to it? Is there anything to it? Basically? Ah, yes. The stone. So the stone ape hypothesis is a real blast. I, I actually have a really good time. With, I, I had a great time looking into it for that video a while back. And Terrence McKenna, by and large, he, he's he was an excellent guy. I mean, he he really did seek to to better the lives of the people around him. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of where this idea of the stone ape hypothesis came from, right? Like he didn't have a background in any of this. Really, I, I don't even think he was like a mycologist or anything outside of of, of hobbies. Um, but the idea of the stone ape hypothesis basically boils down to at some point in human evolution, usually they put it in the Australopithecines, right? We see this explosion in brain case size, right? Right around late Australopithecus, Africanus, Sediba, uh, and into Homo habilis. All of a sudden it goes from being 500, 600 cc's. So for the record, the human brain case is about 1200. Um, and it explodes and rapidly over the course of a very little geologic time. Um, doubles and then even adds a little onto that, 
right? So by Homo erectus, very shortly after Homo habilis, um, within a million years, easy. Do you, you have, do you have CCs? Do you have an idea of what when exactly this time period is, like date wise, or is this like? <clears throat> so for so for late Australopithecus, you tend to see um, three ish million years ago as like the, the height of the the species um homo habilis comes into play anywhere from like 1.6 to 2 million years ago um and that's when we start to see this the brain case really emerge fast homo habilis and homo rudolfensis are these two hominins they got relatively flat faces really human looking dentition they're bipedal obviously so they're walking around on two feet um and critically they're using tools so we find an association with them these the bones of these these ancient critters, right, that were wandering the savanna, um, bovids, things like that, so like antelope. And they've got these harsh cut marks along the sides of them. And we find, of course, stone tools as well. So what was clearly going on is Homo habilis and later, very shortly after, um, but they were contemporaneous for a time period. Uh, Homo rudolfensis were either scavenging these carcasses and scaring off the, the predator animals that killed them and take them for themselves using large numbers, or they were killing them themselves and processing the carcasses back at a home base, which is huge. I mean, that's a massive, massive difference from what we're seeing in Australopithecines. Um, and then, and they're at 500, 600-ish for Homo habilis and up to 700 for Homo rudolfensis. Um, you have these skulls that show up then in Georgia that are assigned to Homo erectus, which is the next specimen, the next species in human evolution, typically. Um, some people want to differentiate these specific Demonisi skulls as being Homo georgicus, which is some people call that Homo erectus. It's a little bit of a spat, um, but I, it doesn't really matter. Um, is it because they look similar, is that why? Well, it's more so Homo erectus. Until the Demonisi skulls were found, they had a range of about nine hundred, maybe eight fifty to like a thousand cc brain case. So just two hundred cubic centimeters less than what we have for humans, right? Um, they're very, very close to us, especially in the post-cranium. I mean, they're almost, to the untrained eye, you would be like, oh, these are human bones. The skulls, they have these big honking brow ridges. They're prognathic. They've got much bigger teeth. Uh, so the skulls are very clearly different. But these Damanisi skulls were found in Georgia, which is kind of close to Russia. And the brain case of these specimens, five primary skulls, range from about 545 to about 750, 775 which is really, really low for Homo erectus. And they were like, okay, what the hell is going on here? Like, yes, they fall, the, some of the schools fall, they all really could fall into the variability of Homo erectus, but uh, we're really pushing it with those 500 schools. So what we're seeing here is a continuum, right? You've got Homo habilis, Homo rulofensis, Homo georgicus in the Dimenisi specimens, and then Homo erectus. And they, at the edges, overlap in brain case size, but they also man up a, a, a sort of range that is all their own, which is really, really interesting, right? What the heck is going on here? And so the stone date hypothesis basically says the reason for the sudden explosion in brain case size where the Australopithecines for 4 million years, or not for 4 million years, um, Miocene apes for 4 million years were hovering around 350 to 500 cubic centimeters in brain case, which is a chip size, maybe a little bit bigger. Um, and then boom, in, in 500,000 years, you're seeing this massive explosion in, in the overall volume of the brain. And the stone ape hypothesis suggests that what happened was either Homo habilis or late Australopithecus started consuming magic mushrooms, so psilocybin, right? And that it was this steady consumption that kind of cracked the code for them. And it was that moment that they realized that they could exploit meat, which right. is huge. 
exploiting meat allowed the brain to just, it's, it's extra metabolism. It's your brain takes up 20%, 20, 25% of all of your calories that you use in a day. It's an expensive organ. I didn't so know that. Like, pardon me. Sorry. Go ahead. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. It's crazy, right? So you, you have to be able to have a lot of, of readily accessible energy in order to fuel this thing. So the incorporation of meat, which is proposed to be the result of this, this like aha moment from psilocybin mushrooms is what allowed this, this, you know, potentially it's, it's a very solid stepwise model that leads to this brain case explosion. Let me, so, let me jump in for a second to ask it so I can like- No, please, I'll monologue if you don't stop me. <laughs> yeah, because just, just for people who are at my level of education with this stuff, the question is, okay, so he's saying that, is there an event basically that causes apes who are in the trees maybe, they're hanging on the trees and living in the jungle. Is there an event like a uh, climate change, for example, something that causes climate to change drastically enough that they have to leave the jungle into different areas and find different uh different forms of food and for example they might find dung patties with flip them over and there's some mushrooms there we, we're hungry let's eat those see what happens and then that's when it all sort of is that is that what that this is is there any truth to this or so are, so are you ooh, are you asking me if i buy into the stone Age no, hypothesis? no but i'm asking is there really was there really a climate change phenomenon that could have caused apes to actually leave and find new foods well certainly beyond doubt climate change the climate changed in the late miocene um in east africa which is where human evolution in all likelihood began probably began that's where we find the first things that are like they're just apes quote unquote but you know the hole at the base of the skull is more underneath suggesting a, a semi-habitual bipedal lifestyle right um, and so all of a sudden, okay, that's a hominin trait. We define early hominins with two primary things, smaller canine teeth and bipedalism. So if you have those two things, you're, you're a hominin. Right. Um, now in East Africa, yes, you have this big, it's, it's a continental shift that's going on really. The East African rift is shifting in relation to the rest of Africa, right? And this is this big chunk of land that's right on the edge, right on that coast over in East Africa. Um, and it becomes more arid. Right, it shifts, the climate changes, and trees become patchier. So the idea is generally that you had this lush jungle all across East Africa, and when the rift when the rift shifts, the area that that is on the rift that's in the EAR, the East African Rift Valley, right, it becomes hotter, it becomes a savanna, and it, and before it becomes a savanna, it becomes a woodland, right. Wow. So if you're living in if you're an ape living in the trees, right, and all of a sudden the trees start becoming farther and farther apart. The tree patches do. How do you get from one patch to another? Because you can't stay in one patch, there's not enough food. You have to come down. You have to come down, right. So the idea is that potentially, um, somewhere around Sahelanthropus chidensis, this, this hominin that's living around 7 million years ago, we can, we can associate this species with a woodland environment. And at the same time, the shifting of the hole at the base of the skull, the foramen magnum, which is where, where your spinal cord comes out, right? So your head is sitting on top of your, of your vertebral column. And in chimps, it comes out more to the back because they're knuckle walkers. Um, now, with the stoned ape hypothesis, this all lines up so far, right? Yes. Say, so far, we're good so far. We're, we're not yeah. about to tell you where, where, it, where the hole's at. Yeah, big environmental shift happens. Critters come down from the trees. They're, they're, they have an advantage. Um, 
if they're capable of moving around efficiently without burning too many calories or overheating, they have an advantage over others. So the ones who are better at being bipeds on the ground, which walking on two legs is actually more efficient than walking on four, right? So they come down from the trees, the ones that are bipedal are being selected for, and you go through a critter called Artipithecus ramidus um, and its sister species, Artipithecus cadaba, and then you get to the Australopithecines, right? So Australopithecus afarensis or Lucy, the classic Lucy specimen, right? And right. that's who Terence McKenna usually pegs with saying, okay, these are the ones that started this, this, this mushroom consumption because they're following these herds of buffalo and flipping over the dumb patties. I'm, only, I'm laughing because it's like Lucy and Lucy in the sky, like the whole entire, yeah. it's just, it all makes, for, for someone like him, it all makes sense. But like, oh, And that's why Lucy was named that, as I'm sure you know. Because they, at, at the camp, when they discovered Lucy Specimen, the, uh, Donald Johansson had um, that Beatles album on loop. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. All checks out, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's so perfect. Um, mm. But I mean, you mentioned in your video there are some problems with this theory. Right. The timing doesn't match up. Oh. Meat, meat consumption doesn't really become a big uh, key player until Homo habilis. So if Terence McKenna wants to propose that the Australopithecines are the ones who are eating these mushrooms, where is their incentive for following the herds of cattle if they're not trying to hunt them or scavenge them? So this, right? does this happen later or before that? Um, which one? This the meat consumption? Meat consumption. Yeah, it comes later. So he maybe yeah. he would say, wait, wait until they're all coming down in front of them, and then they're <laughs> yeah, he, right, well, he, he might say. Yeah, he well, he might say something like, okay, well, maybe there, you know, maybe it just has to happen once. One Australopithecine comes over, flips over a dung patty for whatever reason and consumes the magic mushrooms and then ushers because they're they're highly social, right? All apes are, all most primates are, um, certainly all haplorins. Uh, and it, it gets the other ones to do the same, right? And then the motivation becomes, okay, well, we follow the herds because we want the mushrooms, not because we want the meat from the herds. Um, but that feels just so to me. That feels like a just so story. And and since McKenna is proposing that this happens in like Australopithecus afarensis, well, you've got you've got nearly a million years that you've got to make up for where they're just following these cattle around for magic mushrooms. And that's all fine and dandy, right? But at the same time, the savanna is hot, and these guys are still covered with hair. So risk of overheating, predator risk, that's huge, right? Because these guys still maintain some arboreal adaptations. So they could still go up into the trees when they needed to, maybe to nest, to sleep, right? This bipedalism is mostly to get from patch to patch. Um, and certainly they were bipedal. I mean, this is not up for debate. I mean, they were walking on two feet at this point. Uh, so more, the problem with it is the timing and the motivation, right? It works like, I wouldn't sit here and say there's no way at some point in history, some hominin somewhere didn't try some magic mushrooms and all of a sudden it was like, click. Now we have some new adaptation, whether it's a new kind of stone tool or some kind of new ability to, uh, Terrence McKenna actually proposes that magic mushrooms increase visual acuity. So it would have helped them find uh, foods better, like whether or not you're differentiating between the colors of fruits or if you're, you know, trying to, to pick out a weaker member of the herd, if we're talking about something that's hunting later on. Um, so it's not impossible that that's something that that was at play. It's just untestable. Right. You know? I was just going to say, I was going to say, is it possible that there, the truth could be not maybe in the middle, but like maybe there's a it's a little towards his side as in like maybe if they did start eating these mushrooms, it gives them more creativity. They become a little bit smarter. I don't know. Maybe in that. You'd need to push it to Homo habilis. You'd need to say, okay, instead of the Australopithecines, 
some homo habilis somewhere, right? 500cc brain kiss, this guy's kind of a pinhead, right? Uh, and he or she is walking around and they see the magic mushrooms and they're like, screw it, we'll try it, right? Because animals do that all the time. They, right. they try things just because, and sometimes it's deadly and the natural selection pulls them from the population because they die and they don't reproduce. Um, or they, they actually increase their fitness because they find a new resource that they can exploit that no one else knows about. Um, so these risk-taking behaviors aren't necessarily always bad. So maybe that is something that happened. You got a homo habilis walking around, they try some mushrooms, and all of a sudden it goes click. We've been using these rocks to crack nuts. We've been using these rocks to, to, to scavenge small um, creatures. What if we group together and scare off the, the lions or the hyenas off of this much bigger kill, and we use the rocks to, to cut it up? Or it could have been much simpler. It could have been a, a homo habilis sitting around, they you know, eat some magic mushrooms and they start smashing a bone and all of a sudden the thing cracks in half. Holy crap, there's marrow in there. That's massive, massive caloric intake. And all of a sudden you create this nice feedback loop where it's like homo habilis is like, oh, okay, if I consume mushrooms, then maybe I, maybe I get excellent ideas. And all of a sudden it becomes a fitness advantage. But the issue with that is um, it's untestable. Right. Right, right. We can't show that that's something that did happen. And while there are absolutely benefits for, from um, hallucinogenic mushrooms, mainly they have to do with mental health. And while visual acuity is there as well, I don't think it's been shown that the visual acuity increases enough to provide a serious fitness benefit for an ancient organism, an ancient hominin wandering, wandering across the savanna. It needs to be really, really beneficial, right? Right. Um, and, and another thing that I think that as a factor is these these uh, mm -hmm. mushrooms affect people differently. They're not it's not like there's a uniform. Uh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So not everyone would be beneficial for everybody. Some of like some people take them and makes people do get. Yeah. So I, I think that's I mean, a good thing to bring up, too. That's a good point, too. Yeah. I mean, what if your first homo habilis does magic mushrooms and has a bad trip? Right. <laughs> But all of a sudden, yeah, collection got him out. <laughs> they're never touching it again. Right? They're right. done. They're not, or worse, they're having a bad trip. They wander into the middle of the savanna and get eaten by you know a, a dinophilus, and then they're they're done. They're done still. Um, so you know, it, it's a real tightrope walk. Yeah. The, the things that are going to to benefit the fitness of an organism, and this is you know this is why this massive amount of time is certainly necessary. Um, because it takes time to, to filter in and out certain behaviors and, so, you know, big, large scale morphologic change in animals. Yeah. And, um, so this, I'm going to sort of shift it up a little bit because you mentioned different resources, finding different resources sort of adds to the, it speeds up the evolution a little bit. Mm. If I'm not mistaken. Do you think that you can say, and, and this might be microevolution, but like, do you think like humans like discovering tin or something is like a form of microevolution in a way because you're finding a new resource and it's changing the landscape of the world and maybe changing the making people smarter in a way i guess is that like well yes absolutely i mean social the ability to to dominate socially um is is really key in humans and the reason is because Somewhere around Homo erectus, we get this ecological dominance going on. We're no longer at the mercy of our environment. We don't have to stay close to a water source all the time. You know, we can store food away, which is another key thing that that is cognitively uh, linked. Where it's like, okay, how about I dry this meat? If I if I leave it out in the sun, it does. I can still eat it. It doesn't make me sick, right? Or if I rub it on this rock that just so happens to be salt, 
I can eat it later. It won't make me sick. And then all of a sudden you're not living hand to mouth, right? So once you can achieve this, this environmental dominance, which is, like I said, really, it's just not being at the mercy of the environment around you. All of a sudden the primary competition and the primary selective pressure becomes how much better can you be than others around you? Right. right. And that's where that that social aspect comes in. If you're inventive, you're, you know, you're an early, you're an archaic homo sapiens and you're inventive, boy, that's really going to help you increase your own fitness because you up your own resources and with an excess of resources, you breed more often. Right. Right. I mean, it's it's what we see in other social animals just dialed up to 11. So finding things, I mean, take it into the industrial revolution, or not the industrial revolution, but like the bronze age, right? right, right. Finding things and being able to exploit metals open up, opens up a whole new variety of niches that you can then exploit. Harder tools allow you to dig deeper into the ground and maybe aids you in agriculture, things like that. Um, and, and what you're seeing is still selection it's just been more of almost a social selection it's still natural selection right but right. Uh, it's less envi it's less environmental and it's more how much better can you acquire resources than your peers and if you can have a good idea and find a way to exploit new resources that, that becomes evolution now whether or not it's micro or macro all micro and macro is all they distinguish between is is speciation occurring or not right so if that occurred at the point in time where say neanderthals homo neanderthalensis split off from homo heterobergensis then it would it would potentially aid in macroevolution but wow. we know that they didn't use metals right so at least as of right now um so it would it would have to be more of like a oh you know they learn how to use knots and all of a sudden that allows them to exploit more resources they travel more northerly right and then they take on these physical characteristics that help them be cold adapted, which is what happened with Neanderthals. Um, and it could have been, it could have been something cognitive that spurred that. We just don't know. You make, you're making so much sense right now. Like you're making it all, this makes sense because. Okay, good. I'm glad. The, re I'm glad. the, re the reason why I asked that is because a lot, and want to get into creationism is um, oh, creationists will grant microevolution. Certain, certain creationists granted all the way. Some mm -hmm. certain, certain creationists granted to a certain extent, but like, all you have to do to go from granting that to seeing the whole big picture is to ask yourself if this keeps happening for a long period of time, what mm -hmm. is going to be the result? Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, right? Oh yeah. I mean, it, for them, for the creationists, for the young earth creationists, it tends to boil down to, is the earth very ancient? For the older creationists, it tends to be overcoming this idea of intelligent design. Um, and, and so you, you almost have to take on different strategies when you're talking with, with these different groups. Yeah. Now with, with the young earth creationists, I, in this day and age, I don't think there is a singular excuse for maintaining that the earth is, is young. I mean, at least with the older creationists, they do the look at the trees thing, you know, where it's like the cell is so complex. It had to have a designer. Um, and they can fall back on, well, humans have never created a cell. And well, so they're Let's explore that because I've, I've had someone say things like you look around at all these animals, they look like they are perfect for their environment. Like certain birds fly a certain way and have certain mm. beaks or certain fish, do certain things. And it looks like it was created to do that thing. Mm -hmm. but when you actually look at the data and you look at the, the, the research and the history, you can actually see, especially when you look at the transitional fossils, which we're going to get oh. into in a second. 
And that's, oh, where, yeah. that's where it all comes. That's where it all just starts like clicks. But once you know, once you realize that the, the reason why these animals do what they do is because of natural selection over time, not because it was just put there like that. That's yeah. when it all starts to make sense because you're, you're adapting to your surroundings. So obviously it's going to look like, it's going to look like you were put there to do that thing, but not, not necessarily the thing. It's like, um, Lawrence Cross always says, I, I can say my legs are just long enough to reach the ground. If my legs were too short, I'd be in the air. Like that, that's basically the, yeah. the, the rationale behind creationist uh, looking at things why we adapt to our surroundings. It is. And, you know, you could also take it to the puddle analogy, right? You know, a, a water in a puddle, like water in a, in a little hole in the ground feels that this, this hole is perfectly made for it. But it, in actuality, the water is formed to fit the hole. The hole isn't formed to fit the water. So animals are shaped by their environment to fit that environment. The environment isn't created after the animal and then, you know, uh, it's placed there because it's perfect for it. Um, if that were the case, we wouldn't see, you know, uh, what is basically like rigged solutions to problems, right? I mean, evolution works in a just-so fashion. So we should never see, I mean, the, the laryngeal nerve is the classic example for this, right? You've got this long nerve that goes um, from, from the brain down right uh, to the heart. It goes from the brain to the heart. And in a fish, it, it doesn't have to travel very far because fish don't have necks, right? So it comes down from the brain and it loops through the, I think it's the aortic arch, one of the arches in the heart. And then it goes back and makes its way back up, right? Now, why does it loop through the arch? It doesn't have to loop through the arch. Well, it does because it was fine in the fish. It just so happened to work out that way. The problem is in mammals, it has to travel a lot longer, right? So now the arch in a human has to travel all the way down into your chest through loop through the heart and come all the way back up. It's, it's rerouted in a fantastic way. There's no reason for that unless you share an ancestor with something where it had to travel a lot less of a distance. Take right. it to the extreme. In a giraffe, it travels numerous meters, right. right? It comes all the way down loops, comes all the way back up. There is no functional purpose for the laryngeal nerve to loop like this. Um, but in fish, it's inconsequential. So it wasn't until you start getting something that that grows a neck because a neck is it turns out very important and valuable if you're coming up onto the land right you can look and you know maintain where predators are your eyes are located and you're know, more into the front um and you also need the uh the neck to help anchor important muscles that allow you to move around and humans is like your trapezius um so it's like what's going on here we, we you know Dar the classic darwin quote is like you know we, we bear the indelible stamp of like a lowly origin um which i is true but i i also think it's quite a beautiful origin i don't think lowly is, is a good word to describe it honestly no, i think i agree with you 100 it's just been, been it's so not like fantastic to look at these things and it's like it's such a mystery but it's i mean how do you it just it's fascinating because it's, it's the, way, the way it works is so like it almost seems like i want i don't want to use like words like magical or anything but it's like life forms have the ability to adapt to its surroundings that is just like crazy to me it really is like i i'm more blown away by that than a talking snake talk to a guy and a girl in a garden and that's how everything i mean works. i mean tru truly and and the thing is is that it's like this this process is I mean, again, I, I like, I try to be careful with my language too, but it's like, it seems perfect from the maintenance of life. 
As far as we're aware, life began 3.8 billion years ago with single cellular organisms. And since then, it's been trudging along. You know, the Earth has been here for 4.5 billion years, so maybe 4.8, which means Earth has been Earth has been full of life for longer than it was stagnant and sterile. Wow. So once life can get a hold, it is hard to extinguish, man. It is resilient uh, because so long as you can get critters that can survive a given situation, even if they're barely surviving it, you're creating natural selection. You're creating a filter that is deciding which, you know, deciding is a bad word to use, that is, that is uh, determining, that's better, which traits are beneficial for that organism in that environment, right? A, a real life example that I've been using recently is there's a, there's a population of wolves in North America. Um, I think it's, it's either Alaska or a little bit further north in Canada. Um, and they are called sea wolves, right? They're these weird wolves where 25% of their diet comes from fish. They spend their time on the coast trudging through the water, snapping fish up out of the water. Um, and the webbing in their toes is significantly greater than the webbing in a regular wolf's foot, right? No. Uh, I think their fur re repels oil or repels oil. Their oily fur repels water better, um, and they basically have all of these teeny, teeny, tiny aquatic adaptations, right? And they basically pushed the wolves who were previously there out because they're better at exploiting the resources that are present, right? Um, so give it time. Will these wolves eventually become even more aquatic? Maybe. It's happened before. It happened with cetaceans, so whales, and it happened with pinnipeds, so your, your seals and sea lions and your walruses. Um, their ancestors are just terrestrial creatures living on the coast that figured out how to exploit a new resource. And then the ones that could exploit these marine resources, fish, crabs, clams, whatever, um, those ones reproduced more than the ones that couldn't. And all of a sudden you see a selection and, and a fixation of these marine adaptations. And it's as simple as that. I mean, you can do that in any scenario. It's just one creature finds a way to exploit a resource or they respond in a better way to an environmental change. And all of a sudden they're reproducing more than their conspecifics than the other members of their population. The population evolves towards their morphology. And then the morphology might become more extreme. Do you have, it's so fascinating. Can you imagine like seeing a time lapse of the earth for billions of years and just seeing everything just morph and change and climate? It would be incredible. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be like, you'd, you'd be like, oh, you'd almost want to be a deist for a second. Not a theist, <laughs> but a deist. Like you almost want to be like some, something sparked this, but obviously you can't prove that. But, but, yeah. <laughs> but moving on from that, um, do you, what examples do we have of parts of like the human, for example, like humans, for example, of parts of our body that we don't use anymore that may or may or have been like useful as, in our old self? I guess yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's so I mean, the classic most of the classic examples of this, people will say, oh, you know, whatever your your appendix or your wisdom teeth or, or things along those lines. Um, there's also a ligament that if you touch your um your ring finger and your thumb together, you can see it running down your forearm and yeah. only some people have it. The idea is that it's, it's ancient condition actually helped you with, with grip strength. Um, the, the, the reason that's, that this is an interesting question to ask is because organisms are remarkably good at exacting structures. Um, so that, so we take structures that used to be like atavistic, so they, they lose a function 
and we find something new to use it for. So like our appendix, right. appendixes in other primates, many other primates, it, it helps, it aids them in digesting cellulose, right? Because they're leaf monkeys and things like that. Um, in humans and in chimps, we're omnivores and we eat a lot of fruit and we eat a lot of, you know, in the case of humans, but in chimps as well, we eat meat, uh, insects, things like that. And so our appendix is itty bitty, teeny tiny and kind of useless or so we thought, but it actually stores quite a bit of bacteria that can come and, and then be useful to us later. For instance, if you take antibiotics, your appendix can actually help repopulate your gut microbiota uh, and get your stomach kind of getting kind of feeling back to normal. Um, which is interesting. It's really, really cool stuff. Um, I mean, I would say the, my favorite example of something that's kind of useless in humans is we're, we're covered in hair. We're covered in fine body hair yeah. and it doesn't do anything. I mean, we, 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 our hair stands on end when it gets cold in a room and that doesn't insulate us for anything. Right. Um, but this peach fud sticks around because there's not really a reason to get rid of it. It's, it's not very metabolically costly. Um, and in some cases, right, like it can, it, at least early on, helped aid in perhaps the selection for more eccrine glands. So we have three times the sweat glands of a chimpanzee. We are so good at regulating our body temperature. We thermoregulate like nobody's business. Um, and for that reason, when it comes to running, humans, our own species, is in the top five long distance runners in the entire animal kingdom. Wow, I didn't know that. We're we're incredible runners. Not we're not fast, but well, we, we don't stop. Right. Yeah, we don't stop. And the reason for this isn't because other animals, you know, don't have the skeletal system or musculature or whatever to keep going. It's because they overheat. Yeah. So, so they get going. You know, like you go walking with your. I've got three dogs, um, and so when I walk my dogs, it's really funny because they're pulling me and pulling me in the first ten minutes. And in the summer, it's like we we pass ten minutes and they're they're dragging. They want to carry them, right? Yeah, because they, they're overheating. But I'm good because you know we we sweat and the sweat helps the the water evaporating off the surface of our skin helps keep us cool. Right. So what's the body hair still doing here? Yeah, do you think that's going to be? I mean, obviously this might be a million years or something like that. But like, do you think like it's going away, or do you think humans are going to keep the hair? Like, is that like something that we can we can test or no? Yeah, I don't. If it if it goes away, it'll it'll have to be because there's some social selection against it, and it would probably you know. It'll, yeah, it would have to be people basically saying, I prefer people with less body hair. And then you start seeing a, a movement away. Those ones would have to reproduce more than others. But the problem with that is humans are not very subject to natural selection because these days, especially with the ability to communicate, you'll be able to find someone who's into the hair, right? And then you'll reproduce and your genes, the genes for hairiness will survive in the human population. Right. Um, so select natural selection is, you know, somewhat at at the at our mercy currently to our own detriment right because right. we are we are significantly less in many ways uh resilient when it comes to things like disease and when it comes to things like um like we a lot more common genetic abnormalities and the wonderful thing about this is we have modern medicine so people who do who are born with genetic abnormalities or who do get really really sick they can live a normal life we can use our medicine to heal them and and take care of them the maybe negative quote unquote um just from a from an objective sense of oh evolutionary theory the robusticity of the species blah 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 whatever would be that the genes for those things still stay in the population um 
So natural selection doesn't weed anybody out really anymore. And I think that's a good thing because that means people suffer less, right? Yeah, and maybe one day we'll get the genetics un, you know, uh, under control and we can actually go in and, and through therapy and things like that, when people look like they're going to have something like cystic fibrosis, we can get in there and, and use therapy to get it, gene therapy to fix it, right? Genetically speaking. And then you, you're artificially selecting humanity for healthier, happier populations. Now that sounds a lot like eugenics, <laughs> which is a dangerous thing to, to tinker around with, to be sure. I'm talking somewhere in a far flung future where yeah. this can be done in a way that doesn't disadvantage certain population groups where everybody can have access to um, a, a start in life that puts them uh, in a good place health wise. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I was just thinking about the tailbone thing. Do, do we have like a remnant of like of having a tail in the past or is that? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, we do. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Your whole, you, we have caudal vertebra. And the funny thing is, is like in dogs, right? They have caudal vertebra too. And in their, we call their caudal vertebra, caudal vertebra, which means tail bones. But the official name for ours is coccygeal vertebra because it's a part of the coccyx. Now, there is no structural difference between the coccyx of a human and the coccyx of a chimp and the coccyx of a gibbon or the coccyx of an orangutan or a gorilla. They're all the same thing. We only call theirs caudal vertebra because we consider ourselves better, right? Like, so, so what do creationists say about our tailbone? Do they just say God wanted us to have a little, little, little nub there? For no reason. Well, but they'll say some nonsense about how it helps us sit better or whatever. I mean, doesn't it hurts when you sit on your tailbone? It does hurt when you sit on your tailbone. I mean, it does not feel good at all. Yeah, I mean, and the only reason it doesn't really get selected out further is and because it curves in in most of us. In women, it sticks out a little bit more than in men because obviously there's the pregnancy thing to worry about, so you can't oh. have it tucked too in there. Or it gets it poke the baby. Right. So, uh, so women tend to have, I think actually at a higher rate, they're born with a little bit of it actually sticking out and you have to have that surgically fixed, um, vestigial tail syndrome, right? Nice design, right? Nice design. Yeah, of course. Um, but, but I mean, that's the thing, like our, our pelvis, our, our pelvis isn't very different than any other apes. Our, the blades of our ilia are, are oriented like the blades of your pelvis, the iliac blade. They're, they're oriented more forward to backward because they help us attach our glutes. And our glutes are really important for staying upright when we're walking. But like we have all the same muscles, all the same bones, the same dental formula. We have all the same teeth as chimps and other apes do. Uh, the same, like they, they all have the same exact dental formula that your dentist uses for you. Two incisors, one canine, two premolars, and three molars per quadrant of the mouth. Um, we, we have the same regions in our brain. Our brains are organized in the same way. It's just some areas in humans have been jacked up to 11 um, over the course of our, of our evolution. Um, and who knows, if chimps find a way to incorporate more meat into their diet, could, could, they, could they start to have a little extra energy to, to pump that brain up, to pump up that neocortex? Wouldn't that be fascinating if like, you're in the future and you're seeing like, apes getting slowly smarter and like adapting better and becoming more like human like yeah well i mean they probably wouldn't notice it because it would be so slow but they'd we, be able, at the point now with history and with how we have recorded history now they'd be able to look back and say apes just should not be like this this is 
You know what I mean? Like that could be a thing in the future if if humans survive. If we don't get like it would almost have to be a thing where it's like humans in a million years we become some kind of spacefaring race and we ditch Earth for a little while and then we come back and it's like you've got some like australopithecus like critter exactly. wandering around Africa and it's like what did this come from? And it's like holy shit! Remember when chimps used to be here? It's like chimps aren't here anymore, but something else is. It's like but it would have to be in the I think it would have to be in the absence of humans because we managed to get we made it, we like to have the control over these kinds of things so if we started to see them advancing too much people would start getting wigged out by it and and we might stop the process i don't know people are like you said we have so much control over the world that climate change is affected by us and we sort of it's almost like there's no room for another species to kind of climb up to where we're at like yeah and and here's the crazy thing about that it wasn't always like that I mean, our species has been around for 300,000 years, and we lived at the same time on planet Earth as numerous other hominins. We lived at the same time. We interacted. We interbreeded in some cases. Um, and, and obviously, it went fine for a while, but at some point, we, we won out. Now, why we won out, whether it was something malicious and there was some ancient, you know, uh, uh, sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Like... Um, like like for a little like a spat like little fights little skirmishes that's where i'm looking for yeah. some ancient skirmishes going on right between us and and you know neanderthals or us and you know denisovans or what have you or whether we just simply responded better to the climatic change that was happening at the time and they didn't and we outcompeted them um is yet has yet to be seen but we do know that for two hundred thousand years if not more I mean, definitely more than 200,000 for some of the hominins, but we, we lived here at the same time as four, five, maybe even six other hominin species that were very similar to us. And we're the only ones left. I can't imagine seeing what that was like. Like if you had like a time machine, you can like go on a hot air balloon and look down at what they're doing. Wouldn't that just be, because you would kind of yeah. recognize them as like us a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you will. Yeah, they would look familiar. Right. I mean, you would see them and you would be like, this is just like me, but... A little bit different and and one of the things that humans are are known for is we are one of the most if not the most i think you could almost make the case empathetic and caring animals on the planet when it comes to who we consider our in-group and we are the exact opposite to anyone outside of our group we are the ultimate in in taking you know the patriarchal war like chimpanzee and the make love not war matriarchal bonobos were like both of those mixed together. We, I mean, you see it in history time and time again. It's like people will defend, they'll die for their in group, they'll die for their tribe, they'll die for their nation, they'll die for you know um, their their city state, whatever. And then they're like they're willing to give their lives to save other humans frequently. And then the second you have an encounter with someone who isn't in your in group we will viciously torture them in ways that other animals just don't do. Yeah. Um, and why that is, I don't know, but I do know that we find ways to create out groups with other humans based off of arbitrary things like where they come from or their skin color or whatever. So I really don't think like it, it creates a concerning uh, precedent for how these interactions might've gone. If they go so poorly over such small things today, what about a different species you know we can't we can't get along within our own species sometimes um, you, you mentioned a matriarchal species but there was matriarchal 
is there a lot of those or is it just like is that is it oh yeah yeah primates primates are pretty split um interestingly enough it, which is interesting because most mammals so and the animal kingdom as a whole is classified as um typically sexually dimorphic in favor of females so sexually dimorphic means that one sex is bigger or has some trait that the other sex doesn't have and in the animal kingdom as a whole usually females are bigger than males right we're talking frogs arthropods sharks things like that mostly egg laying species and this is because a bigger female lays more eggs it's that simple so she has a huge fitness incentive to be big um males by contrast and this is a big generalization they want to be little right um and in some cases this is to the extreme where you've got you know orb weaver female spiders that are this big and the males are smaller than my pinky fingernail um and then females will eat the male if they catch him right it's like so there's extreme versions of this in mammals this is critically reversed there are very few mammals where ma where uh, females are bigger than males but that being said matriarchies or social systems in mammals where females you know make the decisions and get feeding priority and dominate effectively the males they're not uncommon so in chimpanzees you have an alpha male right and he has a coalition of males that are kind of with him um and because they stay in the group that they grew up in and females leave females are kind of like cold to each other in chimpanzees and common chimpanzees they, they they're fine with each other but they're not like best friends and males tend to have feeding priority over females right this doesn't mean females have, you know, no power in, in these uh, chimpanzee social groups. Contrary to that, they actually yield, wield a lot of power. It's just in any kind of one-on-one -on -one interaction, males tend to be a little bit bigger and they can enlist the help of other males. So they tend to get what they want. Right across the Congo River, there is a species called the bonobo. Um, it's in the same genus as chimpanzees. So it's as close to chimps as Neanderthals were to us. And they're matriarchal. So they're run by a single female, right? The oldest female, one of the older females usually. Um, and she has her coalition of closely related females and they are just as mean to the males as the males are to females and chimpanzees. They'll bully single males out of their food to, to steal it from them, to get what they want. They'll hit them, they'll bite them. There, there have been cases where males get their fingers or, or even in some cases genitals severely damaged by aggressive females who felt like getting what they wanted. Um, and so, there, <laughs> so there's this really interesting question. And they're also slightly sexual dimorphic. Females are still a little bit smaller than males are. Not by much in chimps or bonobos. It's about, males are about 20, 30% bigger. So it's not extreme um, like it is in gorillas where males are twice the size of females and gorillas are, they're enormous. Interesting. But what the heck happened? Why are these guys, they're separated by one river. So why do bonobos operate matriarchally? And then here's the cool thing. I actually left out the coolest thing about bonobos. When they have issues, um, they have sex aggressively. Um, <laughs> females, females will have sex with females to ease tension. Males will have sex with males to ease tension. Females will have sex. They're aggressively homosexual and they are aggressively sexual, period. Um, because they, they use it like a handshake for, I kid you not. It's the crazy, and it's just as it's just like they say it is. For those of you out in the audience who may know about bonobos, one of my buddies from my master's program went and worked in bonobos uh, in the DRC, and she said it was just like that. She would be sitting there, and you know the bonobos would start fighting, and then all of a sudden, they're banging. Right? <laughs> it's like whoa, happening, and then it's cool, and the tensions dissolved, and they 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 kind of get over it. So it's really interesting that you've got. The chimpanzees who will tear each other apart and they're patriarchal. And then you've got 
the bonobos who are matriarchal and highly sexual. And then you've got humans who are a mix of both. Um, so what's going on there? We probably had some kind of common ancestor. I mean, we did have a common ancestor with them, obviously. We are their closest living relative and they're our closest living relative. But what was the what was the condition of the common ancestor? Was it more like a human? Was it more like a chip? Was it more like a bonobo? Um, and it's really interesting. Like people have made, Franz Duval uh, is a famous primatologist. He thinks that the condition is more bonobo-like. He thinks that we're more like bonobos than chimps. And uh, Richard Wrangham thinks the opposite. He thinks that we're killer apes. And we come from the chimps and we are domineering and, and we value strength over everything else. And we're inherently patriarchal and things like that. Um, so I don't know what the truth is. It's it's probably, I mean, we are somewhere in the middle. I was just going to say, it seems like we're somewhere in the middle. Because we definitely, especially in ancient history, there was a lot of matriarchal societies. In, in the oh, Europe. yeah. Even in Europe, and there was some, you know, in, in, when people, a lot of people think it's all, it was all patriarchal all the way from the Persians and they think of the Persians, they think of the oh, Babylonians yeah. and the Jews. And, but you look at like the Mazagadi and the Scythians and they mm -hmm. were very matriarchal. They had a queen and they, they was mm -hmm. hereditary, just like the patriarchal, but it was always well, a female that ran, ran everything. Well, and you make an excellent point because ancient hunter gatherer societies. So you have to contextualize humans. So our entire species, right? We've been around for 300,000 years. We started doing agriculture 10,000 years ago. So for 290,000 years, right? Like 1920ths or whatever of our entire existence. I'm horrible at math, so I probably butchered that. We lived in hunter-gatherer nomadic societies. And every, the vast, I shouldn't say every, there's probably an exception. The vast majority of hunter-gatherer societies that still exist today are egalitarian. So males and females will do certain jobs and sometimes they'll do each other's jobs. And sometimes there's a male in charge and sometimes there's a female in charge, but by and large, they are looking to survive. Right. So people do the jobs that help the group and everyone has a say. And so for a long time, you know, you're exactly right. Human evolution um, as a field was characterized by this, ah, the, you know, this, this ancient patriarchal ideal and that's the natural way of things. But the, the natural way, if you really want to, to look at what support we actually have for how we existed in the past, it seems to be much more of, a, of an egalitarian let's do what benefits the group sort of thing. Absolutely. And this is where the, some stuff like the grandmother hypothesis comes from. It's like, you, have you heard of this? You heard of the grandmother? No, I've heard of it, but you could, let's, talk, let's talk about it because I'm not really it, sure exactly. It's really cool. And I think there's actually a lot of bearing for it. So humans, with the exception of some whales, uh, so cetaceans and things like that, are the only animal that undergoes menopause. This is very, very weird. Menopause doesn't increase your fitness in any way, and it drastically, I mean, it definitively makes the female's fitness zero when she goes into menopause because she can't reproduce anymore. Right. So why do we go through menopause? What's, what would possibly select for that? And as it turns out, there's a lot of support for this idea that the reason why we go through menopause is because grandmothers who aren't invested in reproducing themselves drastically increase the fitness of their own daughters and of their grandchildren. So basically they end up furthering their line by focusing on aiding in their own um, kind of development, right? So the idea of mom needs to take a break so she gives the kids to grandma or the idea that the entire group benefits because the older women in the group, the older females, this is actually mirrored in elephants too, know where the good shit is. 
right? Grandma's 60 years old and is the oldest one in the tribe, let's say. She remembers, you know, the, the last time that the tribe had a drought when she was 30 or whatever, she's the last surviving member from that time period. And she remembers how they got through that drought. She remembers where the food was. She remembers the, the fail safes to get through these different environmental challenges. So this idea that older females specifically, but older males too, by proxy, right? Because they, you know, older males, obviously males live for a long time too. Typically they tend to live shorter lifespans than females just because females tend to be more risk averse. Um, not that's not a, a golden rule obviously but basically there's this idea that if the grandma is around to teach the daughter the skills that helped her get to that ancient age and then also the tribe that helped keep the tribe alive for her entire existence everyone benefits and more specifically her fitness benefits for, from her daughter and from her granddaughter grandchildren uh, and so they said okay how do, that's a great idea but is there any support for it and so they looked to whales that go through menopause and they looked to pods of whales and they said, okay, whales, calves, baby whales who have their mother and their grandmother around in the pod, do they survive longer and reproduce more than the ones who don't have a grandmother around? And the answer was a resounding yes. They were significantly more fit than the grandmotherless calves of the pod, which suggests that grandmothers drastically increase the fitness of their offspring and their offspring's offspring, which is the best possible fail-safe for doing what evolution demands, which is make sure your genes make it to the next generation. Wow. So it's really cool. And what do we see in all the tribes of the world today? Respect for the elders. Yeah, absolutely. So because they remember, they, they've been around the block, right? Um, so it's an interest, and uh, as a side note too, grandmas during certain periods of years, elder women um, in, in certain periods of uh, certain seasons during the year, bring in the most foodstuffs, the most calories to the entire tribe. And some hunter gathers, I think it's in Oceana, areas of o islands in Oceana, um, because young younger females are pregnant, right? Um, during some, it's more advantageous to be pregnant in some times of the year than, than others in hunter gather groups. Um, and the game that the males tend to hunt for isn't in season. So who brings in the most calories? It's grandma, because she knows where all the patches are to go and bring in these, to gather all of these resources and bring them back in. And so the, the, the whole tribe benefits from the knowledge of the elders of the group. So, this, so fascinating. Well, and all of this goes into this idea of what makes humans unique. We're aggressively social and we are you know, just impeccably protective and empathetic to our in-group, and we are ruthless to our out-group. It separates us from almost anything else. Now, where that emerged in human evolution is a really, really interesting question to ask. Um, but I don't, I don't really know. I don't have an answer to that. I mean, I have thoughts, but who knows? Is it true that there's some connection with the moon cycles and menopause, or is that just like woo-woo? There's a weird... I don't know for sure about this, but there is a really weird phenomena with menstruation and the lunar cycles, and more importantly, with menstruation between females who are around one another. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I heard about yeah. that. So menstrual cycles will sync up, and we think, at least the last, I mean, I'm not an expert in this, this is a bit outside of my, my realm, but for, if what I remember is still correct, I think the idea is that all humans emit pheromones, uh, to some small degree, yeah. how much of an impact these pheromones actually have is not really 
it's not really agreed upon because we're primates as a whole are very very visual and we're very auditory we we like gave up our sense of smell we're horrible smellers our entire order is like this no primates right. smell very well um we we rely on visual acuity and so the idea is that we can still pick up on some of these pheromones so when two females are in a room together something happens where whoever is at a certain point in her cycle is releasing certain kinds of, of sexual hormones that are being picked up by everybody else, you know, just hormones in general, basically announcing here's where I am in my cycle uh, and other females sync up. Yeah, because it helps them. I guess it helps them compete. I, I, I can't imagine how that would you would think that it would be they would try to desync with each other so they don't have to compete for males at the same time of the year or at this time of the month. So I don't know. Interesting. I don't know why they sync up. I'm not sure. That's very fascinating. But I do want to talk about transitional fossils. Because yes. side side story, I was a fundamentalist Christian a couple of years ago. Oh, my condolences. <laughs> right. And so no, I, then I went back to school and I started like, you know, you know, went, to, went back to school, finished a two-year college, community college, went to U University of Buffalo. I started taking like science classes and stuff. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden one day the teacher's talking about transitional fossils. And I'm not kidding you. My entire life, I've been told there is no such thing as transitional fossils. They don't exist. And mm -hmm. every time that this is what, this is what uh, sheltered Christians believe. Like they actually think that scientists were tried to present transitional fossils in museums and they've all been debunked and there's no such thing. And we haven't found any. This is what yeah. I actually thought, that they yeah. don't exist at all. I, I totally believe that. I really, really yeah. do. So then I'm finding out that they, they're not only do they exist, we have human transitional fossils. I'm like, no way. So this was like the start of the, the, start of the deconstruction. It, oh, yeah. It wasn't the main reason, there, it, but it was like a million reasons combining at once. It was like yeah. Deconstruct, but. They do accumulate. It's, it's really interesting how it happens. And it's, it's different for a lot of people. But that being said, for, for evangelical fundamentalists for myself and for many others that I've met a lot of times it comes from wait a second evolution in the age of the earth is very ancient and evolution clearly happens uh-oh what else are they lying about right um because because the Christians that are deconverting these days they're not coming from the progressive Christian the progressive churches who are like yeah whatever evolution's chill um, being gay is chill. Like we don't really care about any of that stuff. Like we're science affirming and we're cool. Those aren't the ones that are leaving the church, right? It's mostly the people coming from, um, from these hardcore. new, yeah, these hardcore middle or even like semi hardcore groups who are like, um, <laughs> basically just saying stuff that isn't, that isn't true. Um, and then the second these kids, which is why they're so keen, it seems to me on saying, send them to an evangelical Christian school, send them to an evangelical Christian college and have them stay in their hometown. Because if they get out there and they see and they're exposed to any kind of conventional science, it's like pulling a card out from the bottom of the house, right? Like, and the right. whole thing collapses. Um, That's a really good point because they, they trap themselves in logic by saying mm -hmm. things like, okay, if Adam and Eve don't exist, and if the Bible's wrong about Adam and Eve living in 4004 BC, then Christ didn't die for your sins because what sins did he die for? So once, you, once you establish that, as soon as that falls apart, as soon as you, as soon as Adam and Eve become myth, the whole you're like, this doesn't make any sense anymore. Yeah, which is why I don't understand it. I don't understand. It's such a horrible strategy. 
You know what I mean? Like you're, you're trying to keep people to stay religious. So why are you like taking the stance that is the most easily torn apart and yeah. making that foundational? It's just, and then they're, you know, it's shocked Pikachu face, right? Like they're like, oh my God, why is everyone leaving the church? It's like, you did this to yourselves. And that's the thing is like, they're not wrong. Theology wise, they're not wrong about the Adam and Eve thing. Adam and Eve have to be real for the salvation through faith to be real too. At, so, at least, I've, I, I think they at least have to be some kind of two individuals. I think, I think you could maybe tap dance around them being like, I think you can certainly tap dance around them living 6,000 years ago. I think you could be like, oh yeah, it's like kind of allegory, but certainly there had to be two people who are the first two that have souls or whatever, that God's like, these are the two, these are my the beginning of my chosen people. Um, but then, you know, you also have to be like, yeah, the, the flood has to be local or allegorical. You can't get around that either. Um, so then it becomes, okay, well, how do we tell the difference? Um, and there are some really cool, I guess you would say progressive, but really they're just, they're just right, right? Like there are some progressive Christian scholars out there who are not Christian, not scholars who are Christian, but biblical scholars of right. Christianity who can look at a lot of this stuff and be like, okay, it's very clear that the Hebrews didn't think that there was a literal global flood because otherwise why would everybody in that area have the same exact myth, but tweaked a little bit. It's classic human historical polemics where they snatch the, the story from someone else and say, it's cool that you think Marduk did it, but actually Yahweh did it. Uh, and our religion is better than yours, which has been what humans have been doing since we're still doing that, right? Like we still Christianity is a, a polemic to a whole bunch of other mystery cults. This is, I mean, this is like sort of how religions form. They they don't just come out of thin air. They there there's ideas floating around in the air, like a messiah, a world messiah, the logos. This was already mm -hmm. going around the Dionysian Dionysus and Osiris, and then you get Hellenized Judaism, and then boom, now all of a sudden you got the soil is there for Christianity to sort of sprout out of. It's almost like they evolve in response to certain is, social pressures. Evolution is so funny. How, how weird. It's so true, though. It's so crazy. But, um, it's so I, crazy. Yeah, but so transitional fossils. For anybody who's watching who still thinks that there's no transitional fossils, what are some examples of those? You can just name them up, and I'll show them. I'm going to show the visual as you're saying that. Yeah, and uh, remind me to send you a, an excellent visual. Uh, I compiled it myself for at least the hominins. But uh, yeah, so so for humans, which I I'm biased because I study hominins and I study well, I study extant primates, but I'm currently in line to be a PhD to study hominins too. Uh, and we we can who oh, also you just want me to list some? I can just list yeah, them all. Yeah, you know, list them and I'll just show them over as you're. Yeah. Oh yeah, so we have Sahelanthropus chidensis living 7 million years ago. This is our first hominin who's starting to show bipedal adaptations. After Sahelanthropus, we have Aurorin tubinensis, who also has bipedal adaptations specifically in the head of the femur. We have Ardipithecus ramidus and Ardipithecus cadaba. These guys are very interesting because just like modern humans and unlike many other primates, they're monomorphic. So males and females have the same size canine teeth and they're also the same size as one another. They also have many bipedal adaptations, including a very human looking hip with partially sagittally oriented iliac blades, a ventral or underneath foramen magnum, and two out of three arches in their feet, just like modern humans have. After Ardipithecus ramidus to the side, you've got Kenianthropus platyops, who's a very, very weird hominin, and we are not sure where it fits. It's got a super flat orthognathic face, uh, littler teeth. We don't really know what Kenianthropus is doing, but hopefully we'll find out someday. 
Then we have the Australopithecines. Oh, we've got a lot of Australopithecines. We have Australopithecus anamensis, Australopithecus afarensis, Australopithecus africanus, Australopithecus gari, Australopithecus sediba. And depending on who you talk to, you might get Australopithecus barlgazali in there too. I tend to be like, uh, you know, might, you might be better off lumping that one. Um, to the side, we have cousins who aren't directly on our lineage, but are hominins nonetheless. They're definitive bipeds. They've got bigger brains than modern chimps by almost two times, but they are definitely separate from us. They branched off earlier from Australopithecines. These would be paranthropines, so Paranthropus boisei, Paranthropus robustus, and Paranthropus aethiopicus. Continuing on from the Australopithecines, you have the emergence of genus Homo with Homo habilis, Homo rudolfensis. These are the first guys, still smallish brains, but using tools, making cut marks, etc. Uh, depending on who you talk to, Homo georgicus and Homo ergaster, both preceding Homo erectus. Then you've got Homo erectus. This is this is the world beater. This is the one to beat. Homo erectus lived on the planet nine times longer than we've been here so far. They were absolute incredible globetrotters. They went everywhere. Once they reach the north, uh, up in, in northern Europe, you see the emergence of from Homo erectus, or rather, I guess you would say, I guess you would say it depends on who you talk to, but either from Homo erectus or Homo hadobergensis, who comes next in Africa, you get the um, the emergence of, in different parts of the world, Homo neanderthalensis in northern Europe or Eurasia, Denisovans, or depending on where this goes, Homo longi over in Asia, on the island of Flores, you have a three foot tall hominin, literally the size of a hobbit from Lord of the Rings, right? With big feet, just like a hobbit and a little bitty pinhead known as Homo floresiensis. And, and on an adjacent island, a similarly small hobbit who is morphologically distinct called Homo luzonensis. Back down in the South, in South Africa, all by itself, just mulling around, we have uh, Homo naledi, who's weirdly basal. This thing had the lower body that was essentially just very modern human, very indistinguishable from modern humans. And while her top, her, because this, this, most of the specimens we've seen so far, some of the specimens we've seen so far are female, uh, but from its upper body, you would be like, this looks really familiar, but it's really in the uncanny valley because its face was still pretty apish and it had a pretty small brain case for something that is considered in the homo genus. Now it's, it's a world beater compared to the Australopithecines, but the brain's still kind of pinheaded. Arms are weird though. They're very long and they're very apish, suggesting that for whatever reason, Homo naledi comes from an Australopithecine that started to advance into genus Homo and then basically was like, nah, we're good. We'll, we'll readapt a little bit to the trees. Um, and it probably has something to do with the fact that it's living in South Africa, isolated from any other hominin. There's no exchange of information going on. So left to its own devices, the pressure disappeared to select for this cognition, um, at least for whatever reason in, in Homo naledi. And then from Homo heidelbergensis, we see the emergence of archaic Homo sapiens and eventually anatomically modern Homo sapiens, who's living at the same time of many of these hominins, which is just crazy to think about. And through all of these, we can track the emergence of bipedality, so the emergence of, of standing up on two feet. This is early, early stuff. Um, we see the rise of tool use. When we see the explosion of the brain case size, we see the teeth begin to shrink, we see the face begin to flatten, you know, we humans, we have a muzzle, but it's very small, like our faces are comparatively very flat to, to other apes. The hands become more dexterous, the wrists more mobile, um, and of course all of our adaptations for, for these big brains tend to manifest themselves in, in our tool use, right? So we see the, the material culture evolve along with the hominins. So 
we have a lot of transitional species for human evolution, and that's just starting at the apes. We could name many, many more if we included the evolution of monkeys to apes or uh, omomides and adapteds into lemurs and monkeys, respectively. I mean, you could take it back to the last universal common ancestor if you freaking wanted to. <laughs> or even if you get into other animals, how much yeah. you can see those evolve too. It's like you can't Certainly. escape this. This evolution thing is pretty much a fact. Oh yeah, you you see it in cetaceans. You I mean, you can track at least half a dozen, if not quite a bit more, of the evolution from land dwelling. Um, uh, artiodactyls or like even-toed ungulates into what would become these whales and dolphins. And curiously, they're characterized, all cetaceans today have this weird little inner ear structure called an involucrum, right? And this involucrum is found in every cetacean today and in a select few transitional species that are starting to become more aquatic. And then it's found in a little hoofed artiodactyl called Indohyus that lived um, in the Eocene, I think. Um, and Indohyus's knees, or sorry, ankles, which have this, this structure called an astragalus, right? The astragalus is maintained in all of these precedingly aquatic species, all the way into Basilosaurus, which is a fully aquatic, almost megalodon-sized whale. Why does it have the ankles of a hoofed land mammal? Wow. It doesn't make any sense, in, except in the light of evolution, right? Yeah. I mean, and you could, like you said, you could do this for anything. You could do this with the tetrapods. You could do this with the evolution of birds from theropod dinosaurs, right? Uh, and, and, oh, isn't sorry. There, isn't there an animal that has uh, horns that go into its head and kill itself? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Rams. That happens with rams. It'll happen with rodents. If rodents don't actually continuously chew, their incisors are ever growing. So if their incisors, you know, become chipped or misaligned at all, then they'll just grow and penetrate the skull tusks will do this and things like um like suids so warthogs and and pigs uh and i think taya suids too so like peccaries it's it's nightmarish you really don't i mean we're really lucky with the the situation that we're in yeah. nothing in us grows and then kills us which is nuts which is like i mean it's pretty obvious that there's nothing creating this stuff this is processes and it's not there's not a mind behind it that's like controlling it it's could go bad basically is what i'm saying it's aggressively uh rube goldberg and it is aggressively imperfect yeah. um now you might could take the stance that if you want it if you want to take a real vague deism you might be able to say whoever started all this they put evolution into place and evolution is perfect in one thing maintaining life and if that's all the day the deity wants to do is maintain life then they've done a bang up job with evolution yeah. uh, but Evolution doesn't care about the individual. It cares no. about the persistence of the gene and of the species. That's what I was going to say is like, if you don't, the only deist position that I would entertain and, and, and that I, I can't think of anyone who can debunk is, um, is that deism, right? The, the big bang happened and it's a basically programmed to start life off and create the earth. And that's it though, but not, not caring about anything inside of it. Like not really focusing on what humans do or, what we believe in or if we worship it or not. Like none of that matters. It's just, boom, I started this universe. Now I'm going on and do another one. I don't even care. Yep. That's it. That's all you can really say. And and honestly, like, I, this is why, you know, as the stalwart agnostic, I maintain that it's a very honest position to hold because you're basically saying, yeah, I guess that could be. I can't prove you wrong on that. 
but I also don't seek to try to. Like I, this is why I love science so much because science seeks to to work in the empirical. It once you get into metaphysics, science is like that's not my zone, man. Like we're we're trying to understand the world so that we can make predictions that make the lives of us and of the other denizens of the planet better. Once you're like who started the Big Bang or what potentially tinkered with the the conditions so that life on Earth would would be possible. I don't know, and I don't really care. You know, we're we're here, right? That right. that's if you really want to go with with you know using bad language, that's a bit miraculous, isn't it? It's crazy that we're here at all, yeah. uh, but incredible. It is. <laughs> rise or nothing. Rise or something rather than nothing. It's just. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, like, it, it's, it's headache when I think about it. it really you does. you can, and there's been some interesting work done by um, oh Jeremy England. He's a, a biochemist, or no, he's a physicist. He's a physics guy, but he touched on biochemistry, and he actually makes the argument that DNA aids in increasing the entropy of the universe ultimately. So, so the emergence of life increases chaos overall. So it would be naturally selected for at a at a cosmic scale because the universe wants quote unquote, to become more disordered. So life then would be inevitable almost uh, if the conditions are right, because if it makes things more chaotic, physics will quote unquote, select for it, um, which is crazy. That's wild. You know what? I just, I thought about this and we're gonna, we, can, we can end on this because I'm keeping you so long, but this oh, is I'll put, listen, I, I warned you about the monologue you, at the beginning. You were like, oh, I don't know. Things might get stale. I don't know that we'll be able to make it an hour. I was like, we'll be able to make it. an hour. I, know, I knew he would. I was just, you know, putting it out there just in case. Yeah. Um, this is awesome. I can keep going for this. This is just awesome. But I almost wonder, like, if if not humans, but evolution in general, like life on Earth is the the end goal. Like I guess Nietzsche would call this the Superman or, or whatever, but this that's philosophy and this is science. But the, what if what if this is just a what if random question that no you're not gonna have the answer to this neither am I. But what if like it's all meant to make like artificial intelligence so that the artificial intelligence can leave the womb of Earth and go into space and do bigger things that we can't even imagine right now. And like you would think someone would say artificial intelligence isn't natural, but like. When you when you zoom out and look at it from a macro perspective, how is it how is it not? If it's coming out of the earth, everything in the earth is what it is. What if that's the whole entire thing, the whole point? If we're just a rope to the Superman, like Nietzsche would say. I I will say one thing that's always I've always found this very fascinating, and I'm not certainly not the first person to do so, but it sure is interesting that the the incredibly microscopic and the incredibly macroscopic look very similar. It's very weird. It is weird. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why that is. Um, yeah. But I mean, who knows? I mean, the, the there's there's a lot of but depending on how you use the word selection. I mean, you you almost end up accidentally selecting for these these if England is right, these complex and eventually chaotic and entropic um, dynamic systems that we call life. Um, so I don't know. It's it's fun to talk about. It is. It's really crazy. We can do that. We can we can definitely uh, have have you back on and we can try. To oh, always, that. always happy. Like like I said, I I really you posed the the potential topics and I was like, man, I don't even I don't even know that we'll be able to get through one of those. There, that you could just yeah. go on forever. Yeah, we didn't even get to Noah's hour, but that could be a, that could be the next one. Oh God, yeah.
Yeah, we that 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 would take at least even I I wouldn't even start on Noah's Ark right now because there's just too much. No, just, yeah, we're waiting. Too much to talk about on that. But that could be the next one we do is definitely because sure. that, that's a whole hour right there. But oh yeah, this yeah, has been great. And I'm sure you got things to do. And I'm so glad I got to have you on. Thanks for coming. Yeah, I'm glad Derek um connected us. For sure, Derek. Derek's great at that. Derek connects. Oh, yeah. He's he's the man. Oh yeah, for sure. And um, yeah, you have just attained true gnosis. You have just attained true gnosis. The Demiurge has no power over you. Jesus.